Welcome to Kainos Church Podcast. Kainos is a church for all people, from all places, for one purpose. If you'd like to learn more about Kainos as a new church plan or as a radical new way of life, visit kainos.church. And to support this ministry and further the mission, visit kainos.church slash support. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 13, um, and it's a little bit of a lengthy scripture reading, but it's necessary, uh, and so um, we're going to look at 13, 1 through 12 for our scripture reading, so here's the word of the Lord, Genesis 13 says, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling together in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other, and Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. This is the word of the Lord, and may God bless the reading of his word. Um, at this time, we're going to transition to Children's Church. Aaron's going to help us do that, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump into our teaching. Morning, everybody. Um, we welcome all those one and above to um, go this way with Miss uh, Lindsay and Mr. Will um, for kids' time. Um, if there's anything that um, might need to be Yes, they can bring some to share. All right, awesome. Thank you, Aaron. Um, hey, so we've got a lot of people who, are, who have reached out to the traveling this week or um, working and whatnot. And so uh, I just want to welcome all of you. Thanks so much for coming. We're glad to have you. Um, and yeah, it's cool. So this morning, I was kind of holding my breath a little bit uh, because it was sprinkling. And I was like, oh no, this is not going to be good for us. But God has been good to give us 
uh, dry weather, which before we even talk about sermon and before we even talk about scripture, I, I want to, um, we've talked about this maybe in some hallway conversations, but I want to encourage us to be praying about a building. So I have a meeting on Tuesday with, with a potential space, but uh, not only praying about a building, but also begin to l- start looking maybe yourself uh, about for a space that we can meet indoors because the weather's not going to hold out forever. Uh, we've been really, really fortunate thus far that God has allowed us to be outside. And I think generally speaking, we're going to be able to do that, but we need an indoor space. So I uh, want to encourage you to begin praying for that as well. Um, all right. So we're going to continue our series this morning on Sermon on the Mount. Uh, right now, we're making our way through the Beatitudes, um, and we're thinking about the idea of what does it mean to live the good life? We live in a world and in a culture where so much energy and so much time is spent trying to obtain happiness, trying to find fulfillment, trying to accomplish goals and dreams, trying to find inner peace, trying to have great achievements. Uh, we live in a world where the main goal often is to live your best life now. Uh, But how is that even possible, and what does that really mean? Um, We live in a world where our main goal really is about our own self-fulfillment and accomplishing the things that are important to us. But Jesus is calling us to live differently. He's calling us to experience the good life. And and in the Beatitudes, what he does is he gives us a blueprint for how that's actually possible. As we've said all along, the Sermon on the Mount is the most well-known and most widely taught portion of scripture in all of church history. And yet, as we've quoted before, and we will continue to keep thinking about this idea, according to John Stott, it is also uh, the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. The sermon, as we've talked about, is a real sermon. Jesus taught this, and yet it is also um, a snapshot of what Jesus taught throughout his ministry. And more than that, what Jesus is doing when he goes to this mountain and sits down and starts to teach is he is reminding us of Exodus 19 when Moses also went up to a mountain to receive the law from God. Because what Matthew is trying to show us is that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher. Uh, uh, If you read Gandhi and Raja Roy and all these uh, uh, other faith leaders throughout history, they liked lots of Sermon on the Mount because it's good moral teaching. But what Matthew is trying to show us is not that this is just a good moral teaching or a good way to live, but Jesus is actually greater than Moses. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the one who's come to deliver his people. So the first 12 verses, these Beatitudes, Jesus is giving us a lot of stuff. And ultimately what he's doing is he's teaching us what does it mean to have the character traits of living as part of the kingdom. Because you see, Jesus is not just merely concerned with telling us how to live, He's also concerned with telling us who we are to become, not just behavior modification. We often think we have to do better, try harder, change the way we're living, change our uh, 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 approach to things. But Jesus is interested in changing more than your behavior. He doesn't just want you to not look at this on the screen or, or just treat people better. He wants you to view people differently. He wants you to, your heart to be transformed. And so let's jump into our text. Um, Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read again all 12 verses. We're going to do this every week so that we can hear how the Beatitudes flow together, how Jesus' sermon flows together. Uh, And I want us to to think about the idea of what it means to be meek and yet full of strength. Meek but full of strength. So we start in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, 
he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. And when he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that as we get a few minutes just to look at your word, Lord, that you, um, God, we know that you speak through your word. And so, Lord, this morning, we're outside, and it's a beautiful morning, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the gift of having a morning where we can hear the birds chirping and we can feel the breeze blowing, Lord God. We thank you for this space and the opportunity to be together. But, Lord, this is also a distracting space in many ways, and so I pray that you would help us to uh, set aside the things that are that were happening in the car before we showed up and the things that we're doing as soon as we leave. God, that you would help us to not be distracted by the cars that drive by, but rather, Lord, you'd help us to just listen to you for just a few minutes. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, that you would, you would help us to receive your word. And God, we pray you'd help us to apply your word, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our scripture reading this morning is in Genesis 13, and it might seem a little disconnected from the Beatitudes, but if you've been in church for a while or if you're like me, uh, maybe you started off reading your yearly Bible reading plan and you made it halfway through January and missed out, you probably have seen at least this text somewhere. Um, Abram, soon to be called Abraham, and his family are on a journey because God has made a promise. Abram's very rich. So he takes all his stuff, he and his family, his nephew, and they, they go out and they're looking for the land that God has promised them. And what happens is on this journey, their servants start to fight each other and they look out on the land, they see that there's not enough room for all of their stuff. And so Abram, he's older and yet, and really and culturally, he gets first dibs on where they're going. He's the one that God made a promise to. But what happens is, Abram sets aside his right to choose and instead allows Lot to pick the land that he wants. In other words, Abram, though he is first, he chooses to be last. Though he has power, both in his standing, in his family, and in his wealth, he stewards it in such a way that his nephew is empowered and has the opportunity to flourish and thrive. Abram, though chosen by God and commissioned to go out, takes the lesser seat. And this is the reason that we've read this text, because actually it's a great illustration of what our text is teaching us this morning. As we look at the sermon, again, we are reminded that Jesus has been out preaching. And in fact, if you read Matthew kind of together, if you start in chapter 4, verse 25, and you go to Matthew 9, verse 5, you'll see these are sort of the bookends of Jesus' sermons. The sermon starts before Jesus goes to the mountain with the fact that he's been out. He's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been healing people, uh, he's been showing compassion, and news is spreading about him. And then we go through the entire Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount concludes 
by Matthew saying that Jesus was preaching and teaching and healing and word about him was spreading. See, before we got started in this text, Jesus has been out doing a lot of stuff, casting out demons, uh, showing compassion, healing the sick, raising the dead, and people have heard about what he's doing. But now he goes and he sits down and he starts to teach and he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word blessed, as we've talked about and we're going to keep talking about, does not mean uh, uh, a psychological or an emotional sort of happiness. It's bigger than that. And in Jesus' time, to be blessed really was all about your outward prosperity. It had nothing to do with your inner character or your heart change. It was often tied to your standing in the community. And as we've said, this is often true for us too in the way that we think about what it means to be blessed. We think about blessing in terms of our happiness. Everything's going right, so I'm all right. We think about blessing in terms of all of our needs are being taken care of and therefore we bless. And the presupposition that we operate with is that if some things are going wrong, then, then something is wrong. But what we know from the Bible is that God uses difficulty to make us more like him. So you can be blessed and still be in the midst of trials. And see, what we find here is Jesus starts to teach this, and he says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. The upside down of what Jesus is teaching here is really kind of startling for us. But see, to understand the word blessed, we really have to begin to detach it from our emotions and to start connecting it to God himself. It's about our spiritual well-being. It's about having God's approval and therefore us learning to delight in what it means to be his kids. Because if we have Jesus, we have everything we need. If we have God, if we know him, then we are indeed blessed regardless of what's happening in our lives. See, what, what blessed does here in the Beatitudes is it is a declaration and it's an invitation. It declares what is true based on who God is, and yet it invites us into something. It invites us into experiencing a flourishing, a thriving, a good life as his children. See, what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes is he's teaching us how we can live rightly in the world as his kids. So he says, blessed, flourishing, thriving are the meek. Thriving are the meek because they will inherit the earth. Jesus says, blessed, happy, flourishing are the meek. But meekness in the ancient world, apart from Christian teaching, was not a quality that was to be sought after. In fact, Meekness only described outward behavior, and it only applied to men. So if you're a woman, meekness could not apply to you. And if you were a man and meekness was applied to you, it was not something that was positive. It was negative. It was essentially calling you weak and effeminate. It was a way of saying you're not a manly man. You are, um, you're, you're not what the world is aspiring to be. But contrary to the world's perception, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not shyness. It's not indecisiveness. It's not about being timid. To be meek is not to let other people walk all over you and let people misuse you, mistreat you, and abuse you. That's not what being meek is. And often we have misapplied this and we have taught this incorrectly. Where we tell people just to be meek, meaning they just have to be timid and shy and just kind of get by and get along. And that's not what we've been called to. Contrary to the world's perception, meekness is actually quite the opposite. Meekness is strength, and it is people who are quite powerful. Meekness is power under control. It's about knowing who you are, 
and whose you are. It's about being gentle and humble. It's about how you respond when you're under attack. It's less about justifying yourself and more about uplifting and edifying other people. Meekness, the way Jesus describes it, um, it, is not just about who you appear to be on the outside, but it's about who you are on the inside. A meek man or woman is a person who recognizes that they are poor in spirit and therefore they see themselves correctly. They are people who know that they are rich in grace, which means they then have grace to give. See, a meek person is someone, think about where we've been. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. See, the, the, all the Beatitudes really are about coming back to the very first Beatitude. To be poor in spirit is the linchpin. It's the master key. It's the first domino in understanding all that Jesus is teaching. So someone who is meek knows they are poor in spirit and therefore they see themselves correctly. Someone who is meek is someone who weeps with those who weeps and, and they mourn with those who mourn because they are able to look past themselves and their circumstances. And one of the ways that you know meekness is taking root in your life is that you no longer start to see yourself as the focal point of the story. One of the ways you know that you're starting to become meek and that it's God's changing you is that you're no longer the center of the universe. As one guy puts it, you, you don't think less of yourself. It's not about demeaning yourself. It's not about looking down on yourself. It's not about uh, making yourself, you know, thinking about yourself negatively. It's not about uh, thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. And to compare that, what, this guy, when he talks about it, he says that um, meekness and humility is a lot like your middle toe. You don't really think about your middle toe unless there's something wrong with it, Right? If you stub your toe, then all of a sudden that thing is like, it's tiny, it's just right there, but, but it starts to like occupy all of your thinking because it's hurt and it draws all its attention, right? That's how our ego functions. When our ego is broken, it gets all our attention. But meekness in the Bible is not meant to be you as the center of the story. It's supposed to be like your middle toe, it's just supposed to work. You don't think about it. You don't think about yourself less, you think about, or excuse me, you don't think less of yourself, you think of yourself less. And Jesus says a meek person, that's the one who inherits the earth. And to inherit the earth is to receive the promise that God has made to Abraham. It's to be part of true Israel and to receive the blessing of being his child. To inherit the earth should remind us of Psalm 37. In the psalm, he, he says that the wicked, they, they're the ones who perish. Those who don't follow Jesus, they're the ones who don't have an inheritance waiting for them. But to those who follow the Lord, those who are meek, those who are humble, they inherit the earth. It should remind us of Revelation 21, where John says that those who have put their hope in Yahweh will finally at last experience the rest and renewal that he has promised all along. Behold, I'm making all things new, Jesus says. You see, but this isn't just an eternal thing. It's not just that I can be meek and therefore one day I can experience this grace that God has promised. Actually, what we learn is that God has designed us to be people who experience his grace in the moment, in the present. We don't get to experience it fully because things have not been completely repaired, but we get to experience it in part. God's promise is that those who hope in him and seek to reflect his character get to experience more and more of his grace now and therefore get to give more and more of his grace now. 
And this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Because as long as you believe it's up to your hustle and your grit and your talent and your wise planning and your resources to make it, you will not be meek. Instead, what you'll do is you'll misuse the gifts that God's given you and you'll mistreat the people that God's placed in your life. See, as long as you think this is all about you and the kingdom that you're building, or as long as you think that you've got to control and manipulate and manage things in order to get the desired outcome, you will not be meek. Instead, what you'll do is you'll misuse people. You will take the image of God that's in them and you'll strip it down for your own good purposes. You see, because the only people who inherit the earth are those who know they can't earn it, they can't build it, and they can't buy it. Because the new heavens and the new earth have to be received by faith. They have to be received by faith. And so that leads us kind of really thinking about two things. There's the strength we think we need, and then there's the strength that we actually have. There's the strength that we think we need, and then there's the strength we have. The strength that we think we need, you might think of this as the beatitude of our culture. And the strength that we think we need is all about this life and it's all about here and now. It's about seizing the moment, carpe diem. It's about taking advantage and, and pushing and hustling and moving. It's about living for today. The beatitude of our culture says grab what you can, when you can, where you can, however you can, because tomorrow is not promised. Culture says the only inheritance that you have, the only thing that you got is what you make for yourself. But then there's this beatitude, there's this strength that Jesus promises. Jesus says, blessed, happy, flourishing are the meek. Why? Because meekness can only flow out of knowing where I am spiritually in relation to God. Meekness only comes first when you recognize you're poor in spirit. Meekness only, it has to start there. And not only does it start with, man, I, I don't love God completely, and yet God's calling me into this relationship but also it starts, you start to see yourself correctly. And it's only out of you seeing yourself correctly can you start to love him and love other people. So we throw around you know, scripture verses like, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But that implies some things. It implies that you understand where you are in relation to God and in relation to other people. See, reconciliation in the Bible is first vertical, but it is also horizontal. See, it starts with me being reconciled to God. But then what happens is, as I'm redeemed and reconciled to God, I've been justified by faith, my heart starts to change. And as my heart is changing, one of the things we don't talk about enough is that I have to be in right relationship with me before I can love you appropriately. See, the gospel doesn't just heal my, my sinful brokenness with God. It also begins to heal the sinful brokenness I have with myself. Because as long as you're broken, you'll never believe, Ephesians 2.10, that you're God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good work. You'll never see that you were stitched together in your mother's womb and that, that God has created you for a purpose because you're broken. But once you start to realize that God has justified you, that he saved you from sin, and that he has made you like him, you've been created in his image, once you get to that place, then you start to be repaired on the inside, and the insecurities you have start to be fixed. You don't just start to look at God like he's your earthly father. You start to experience him like he's your heavenly father. You see, what Jesus is doing, he's calling us to see something. He's saying that meekness is where we experience God's grace because it's in meekness where we encounter our Savior. The world says, I need more. But meekness says, I am, I am I'm content with what I have. Why? 
because I have an inheritance that's waiting for me that's worth more than anything I have here. Meekness says, because I have Jesus, I have everything I need. The question before us really is, how do we learn to live like that, though? How do I learn to decenter myself from the story and instead see Jesus as the center of the story? How do I learn to love God completely? How do I learn to love myself correctly? How do I learn to have compassionate, to love people in a compassionate way? How do I learn to live as Jesus is calling me? And for the Christian, it's not, oh man, this is impossible. I can never do this perfectly. I better run to Jesus. It's, oh man, there is no way I could ever do this perfectly. Thank God I have Jesus. You see, the gospel gives us one who has already accomplished everything we need. The gospel shows us one who is all-powerful, and yet one who embodies what it means to be gentle and meek. Jesus referred to himself as gentle and lowly. Jesus calls himself meek. Jesus was gentle with people. He was kind. He was compassionate. He was gracious. Jesus confronted injustice when it pertained to other people, and yet he was silent when he was wrongly accused. Think about that for a minute. Jesus was passionate about confronting injustice when other people were infected. And yet when he was confronted, he was silent. The whole way through his trial, people are, they're trying to get him to, 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 to trip himself up. And, and all he says is, well, you've said so. Are you the king of the Jews? That's what you say. And it's not because he didn't realize that. It's not because he was confused. It's not because Jesus didn't know the power he possessed. Instead, Jesus was setting aside his power because he was redeeming humanity. Jesus' mission from God, his, his um, redeeming work, his purpose, was not to be thwarted or sidetracked because men wanted him to, to, to quickly step in and do the things they want to do. Remember, they wanted a king who would overthrow the Roman Empire and would do all this stuff, and that's not what Jesus came to do this time. You see, in Jesus... We have a God who is all-powerful, and yet he embodies what it means to be gentle and meek. Though he created all things, he did not flaunt his power the way the world wanted him to. Instead, he was gentle with people. He was kind. He was compassionate. He was gracious. In Jesus, we have a Savior who is not detached from the pain of our experience. He was tempted in every way, and yet without sin. It's not that Jesus wasn't tempted with the same sort of mentality that we are. Get what you can, while you can, all that stuff. Yet Jesus remained without sin. In him we have a Savior who invites us not to escape the world, but instead one who invites us to endure in the face of the world and to find true meaning and life. As Christians, we don't fight from victory, we fight, or excuse me, for it, we fight from it. Sin and death has been defeated, the grave has been conquered, therefore real life, true life, the good life is available here and now because Jesus is with us here and now. And so why does this matter? It matters because meekness is a critical characteristic of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You cannot inherit the earth, he says, unless you learn to become meek. And if you're a Christian, you know exactly what this looks like for you because you too know how sinful you are. You know how you see yourself and you know how you're the center of every store. I mean, you're in the same, every time you walk into a room, guess who's there? You are. You're always the center, right? And yet, you also know that your pride can lead to you stumbling. 
And if you don't follow Jesus, you know the same thing. You know that there are parts of your heart that are not as they should be. And you know that sometimes, though you want to be perceived as humble, you know you're not on the inside. That's the story we all find ourselves in. You see, ultimately, friends, what, what this text teaches us is that meekness only comes when we recognize that we have all we need in Jesus. You take Jesus out, meekness isn't possible. And even with Jesus in the center, meekness is not easy. It's not easy to not defend yourself when people are accusing you. It's not easy to, 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 to give, up, give up some things so other people can thrive and flourish. I mean, not many of us, if we were Abram and were, were commissioned and, and chosen by God to go choose a land, would say, no, young, why don't you choose it first? It's okay. No, we would walk in, we would find, just like Lot did, those looks like the greenest grass, that's where I'm going to go. But that's not what we've been called to. Meekness only comes when we recognize that we have all we need in Jesus, and so we respond to that. We are confronted with the reality of our need for that type of strength, a strength that is all-powerful yet is under control, a strength that does not cast us aside because of sin, but one that endures in the face of it. A strength that cannot be destroyed, but one that perseveres. A strength that is not based on our performance. Instead, our strength is rooted in the performance of Christ himself. We are confronted that, with the reality that God has made a way, but it is not the way that you and I would choose in our flesh. We would choose to be known and to be prosperous and to have everything we've ever wanted. And, and here's the problem. As Christians, we tell ourselves the lie that if we had more, we would give more. Well, if I just had more money, I'd be more generous. Well, if I had more privilege and power, I would use it better. Well, if I had more influence, I would make sure that other people... And that the reality is, is that if we don't do that with the things we've been given, we won't do it if God gives us more. If you're not generous now, you won't be generous later. If you're not thinking about other people now when you don't have much or a lot of influence, you will not think about other people when you have more influence. Because influence and power and money, they corrupt you. And so if you're not rooted and grounded in love, if you're not rooted in who you are in Christ, now, you won't be later. Prosperity knits a man to the world, C.S. Lewis said. He starts to think that he's finding his world in it, or his place in it, when really, uh, it's finding its place in him. Prosperity starts to tie us to things that, that, frankly, compete for our affections. We are confronted with our need for a strength that is not based on our performance, but is instead based on the performance of Jesus, one who graciously meets us and teaches us to live and to love with meekness and gentleness, tenderness and conviction. Jesus was meant, uh, meek and gentle, and yet he was powerful. This is the same man who flipped tables in the temple, when people were being ostracized. And yet the same man who encounters a woman at the well and shows her grace that she's never experienced. Ultimately, we respond to meekness himself, Jesus, the Son of God, who offered his life freely so that all who would believe in him would have life and have it to the full. Though Jesus was God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. And so the question before us this morning is, where are we in all of that? Jesus says, blessed are the meek, happy, flourishing, thriving are the meek, 
not timid, not being misused and abused and walked all over, and yet not asserting yourself into every situation, but instead allowing God to use you where he's placed you. The question before us this morning is, what will we do with the type of strength that Jesus offers? A strength that is not uh, robust and loud and seeks to dominate every room that we're in, but a strength that instead is, is sort of like a gentle tide that sort of pulls people exactly where God desires them to be. Because see, in order to have this type of strength, you first have to have him. You have to recognize that you're poor in spirit. And as you recognize your poverty of spirit, you begin to see that God and only God is able to make this true of you. But let me ask this question. We'll, we'll end with this. What, could you imagine with me for a second what it would look like if the church at large, I want you to think about all the things you've seen on the news, the internet, social media, whatever. Could you imagine with me for a minute how perhaps this last year would have looked differently if the church would have been known for its meekness and humility in the, fits of, in the midst of all the craziness that we've experienced? Because if we're honest, that's not the reputation, generally speaking, that we have among many people. Can you imagine what it would look like if we, as God's people, were faithful to not try to build a better life here necessarily. And I'm not saying that in terms of people who are experiencing difficulty and poverty. And all that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the hustle and the build culture that says I got to have everything in order to be successful. Could you imagine if we kind of detached our emotions from that a little bit and started to think more about heaven and more about the kingdom that God's calling us to be a part of? So may God make us a people who remember that we have this kind of strength, a strength that is enduring, a strength that is loving and is kind, a strength that is able to help push people towards hope, a strength that is not so much concerned about necessarily our well-being every moment of every day, but the well-being of other people. May God make us a people who remember that because we have Jesus, we have everything we need. And may God help us live from that place. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Um, God, being meek just doesn't seem appealing from a worldly perspective. From my own perspective, when I hear the word meek, I don't get excited about that. And yet, Lord, it's because I don't quite understand what it means to be in your kingdom and to live with your character. There are still parts of me and, and us that have not been changed or that are in process of being changed. And Lord, we just confess that, and yet, Lord, we're, we're grateful that you show us what it means, that you've embodied what it means to be gentle and humble and kind. Lord, we come this morning recognizing that we're not as we should be, and yet, God, we're grateful for the work that you're doing in our lives. And Heavenly Father, I just pray that, um, that wherever we are on the spectrum here, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to see that you are good and loving, that you're, you're kind and gracious, Lord. Help us to, to not only remember that in our heads, but help us to experience it in our hearts. Father, thank you for the ways in which you, <laughs> you are so tender with us. Thank you that because you began a good work in us, your word says that you're going to finish it. That we are in process, Lord, and yet, 
And yet we, we are hopeful because we know that in this process, you are changing us. Lord, thank you that, um, thank you that we have you. Lord, I pray that you will remind us of that when, when things are tough, when things aren't going our way, when, when, when finances are rocky or relationships are struggling. Father, I pray that you'd help remind us that we have you, and because we have you, we have everything we need. Help us to be like Paul, Lord, pe- people who have learned to, to, to do without and learned to do with. Help us to be people who are less interested in justifying ourselves and claiming our stake to this world, but instead, Lord, people who want to see other people flourish and thrive. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to the table, um, you know, we're, we're reminded of what Christ has done for us. That though he was God, he allowed his creation to persecute him. That's crazy. That though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He, he died the most gruesome death. And then in dying that death, he, he, he became a curse so that we could be free. This table... And what it represents is not for people who are still trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. It's not for people who think they have to have it all together. It's not for people who, um, who really believe in their core that, that life is, this, this is all that there is. This is a table for imperfect people, people who don't have it all together and recognize that Jesus is the only one who offers life and life to the full. And so if you're here this morning and you, you don't follow Jesus, you don't know where you're at with him, we would ask you not to partake in the table, not because um, uh, we don't want you to experience the freedom that comes, but because we want you to experience that. We want you to do it in the right way. And so uh, if you're here and you don't follow Jesus, I'd rather you just um, not partake and then we can have a conversation. But if you're here and you realize that Jesus is your only hope, if you realize that you are poor in spirit, then this table is exactly for you. If you're here this morning and you're doubting where you're at right now, life's hard. Sometimes we have doubts. This table is for you. We believe that this, in this table and in this meal that we're going to share together, God meets with us in a very special way. And that he strengthens us and that he encourages us and that he makes himself tangible. This is a tangible reminder of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. And so, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks for it. He broke it and he said, this bread, this is my body. I want you to eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, in the same manner, he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant. Just poured out in, the, you know, poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to take and drink it. And if Paul tells us in his writing that as often as we eat the bread and we take the cup, what we are doing is we are proclaiming Christ's death until he returns. And so if you're here, uh, what I want to do is I want to invite you to come up in just a minute. You can come up as a family. Uh, you can come up just one person for the group. doesn't matter. You can come up, grab a cup. And when you get back to your seat, um, don't drink and eat right away. Scripture tells us we do, we're to examine our hearts. 
to examine our hearts for any unconfessed sin, any unrepentant sin in our life. Scripture calls us to reflect on this meal because in this meal we get to experience God's grace in a special way. So, I want to invite you now to come, taste and see that the Lord is good.